This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. First of all, Jamal, to all of our viewers and listeners who are celebrating Ramadan Karim. We just started the, the holy month of Ramadan for you know, a billion and a half Muslims all over the world. And uh, people are fasting from just uh, before sunup to just after sundown. It's an extraordinary time for Muslims all over the world. We want to wish our, our best to all of our Muslim viewers and listeners all over the world. Absolutely. And with uh, that in mind, Jamal, we have a really great show today. You know, we're going to be covering this really major development at the United Nations where HRC 49 from the Human Rights Commission basically adopted a resolution of human rights, you know, condemning human rights violations in occupied Palestine, the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem. We'll be getting a thorough analysis and update about that. We're going to unfortunately continue to talk about the devastation in Ukraine and the war um, with things that are happening in the uh, video and uh, still images coming from Bucha outside of Kiev today, the, uh, the devastation, the death, the destruction, the wanton killing of uh, innocent civilians, men, women, and children is just uh, devastating. And of course, we have a lot to say about that. But before we get there, uh, we're going to watch an, a really great interview that you did with Diana Bhutu, a human rights attorney in Palestine, uh, talking about the Nakab Accords or Agreement. I, I call it the Clown Nakab, Show. Nakab Summit or Summit. Negev Summit. Whatever it is, it's a, clown, it's a clown car. It's a clown show. But I'm being kind when I say that. But it's always good to hear from uh, Diana Butu about this. And you did a great interview with her. I think we're going to start with that and then uh, talk about it on the other side. You're right. Let's watch uh, Diana Butu. Last week, Israel hosted the foreign ministers of four Arab nations, Bahrain, Egypt, Morocco, and the United Arab Emirates, along with the United States in the Naqab, or Negev, at Kibbutz Sidei Boker, near the tomb of Israel's first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion. The Palestinians were not invited to the summit. What were the objectives of this summit and why now? Joining us to discuss this and more, Palestinian-Canadian lawyer and former legal advisor to the Palestine Liberation Organization, Diana Buto. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Diana. Thank you, Jamal. It's always a delight to be on your show. Let me start with the symbolism and optics of the summit. I mean, starting with the Palestinians being invisible... The choice of the venue, the summit was held on the eve of also land day. Was this a deliberate message by the participants to the Palestinians that not only you don't count, you're not part of the equation of the, of the Middle East, but we are also meeting near the final home and resting place of Ben-Gurion, one of the masterminds of the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, and in the Nakab where Israel continues to steal land from its Bedouin inhabitants. I mean, <laughs> tell me about this this kind of the timing and the optics. Well, Jamal, there's a lot of things that were involved in this uh, summit um, that are sending messages, very clear messages. The first, which is one thing that you didn't mention, which is that actually the, the summit was held 20 years to the day of the Arab Peace Initiative. 
And um, and these normalization agreements, which are really just security contracts, nothing more, are uh, are, are not only a blow to Palestinians, but a blow to this idea of Arab consensus, because it was 20 years ago that we saw that all of the countries of the Arab world came together and said to Israel, if you end your occupation, if you let refugees go home, then you'll have normalized relations. So here they are 20 years later, refugees are still not allowed to come home. They, Israel still hasn't ended its occupation, and now it's being rewarded for it. So it was everything from rewarding Israel um, without any, without Israel doing anything, killing off Arab consensus through the Arab Peace Initiative. As you mentioned, just a couple of days before uh, Land Day, which is which was uh, March the thirtieth of nineteen seventy six, commemorating the the confiscation of thousands of dunams of Palestinian land inside 48 and the killing of six Palestinians on that day. And of course, um, the fact that it was done in the Nakab, uh, the Negev, a place that is witnessing daily ethnic cleansing with home demolitions occurring in that area every single week. The whole point of the summit was simply nothing. There was nothing that came out of it except to say to Palestinians, you are not here. We are going to continue on and continue to to, uh, make alliances, regional alliances with Israel, and you Palestinians no longer matter. That was the message that came out of the, the, uh, the initial signing of the normalization agreement in 2020, and this was the message very clearly of the summit. There was nothing else that came up. Out what of about, I mean, this came also, the gathering comes as the Biden administration has been working to renew the 2015 international nuclear deal with Iran. Was the purpose also of the gathering besides, uh, you know, we've mentioned in no message, you know, the message to the Palestinians was also to form uh, an alliance or an axis uh, against Iran? Absolutely. That's always been the, 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 the point behind these agreements is that they've now divided up the Middle East and they're looking at Iran as 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 being the new evil or the new old evil. And uh, Israel is has come to these, these states and said, we have a common enemy. And as we say in Arabic, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Um, and so what they've said to them is sign these normalization agreements with us. We will have normalized relations. And then together we can, we can form an alliance against Iran. What they are in effect saying is Palestine doesn't matter. The Arab Middle East doesn't matter. All that matters is Iran. And the only two parties that matter are Iran and Israel. To your knowledge, has any of these Arab foreign ministers uh, visited uh, the West Bank uh, or Gaza or interact with any Palestinians during this visit? Or No, they haven't. Or did they, I mean, are they really helping to whitewash Israel's apartheid? Oh, absolutely, Jamal. Look, no, they didn't visit Palestinians. And to be quite honest, I'm glad they didn't. Um, I'm tired of this, this idea that somehow there are two sides. There's one side, there's an occupier, and then there's the occupied. And you have to clearly choose a side. And they've chosen the side of the occupier. They've chosen the side of the oppressor. Are they, are they whitewashing? Absolutely. Look, I want to take you back to 2020. When the first... Uh, normalization agreements were signed. You'll recall that 
it was a it was a blow to Palestinians for a few reasons. One, as I mentioned, it was a it was killing off Arab consensus. Two was that they were rewarding our oppressor by having normalized relations with them. But third, and I think the part that stung the most, at least for me, was that the way that they were couching it was that somehow they were doing Palestinians a favor. They were doing a good thing for us. They claimed that this was going to stop normalization. They they claimed that this was going to stop settlement activity. And I can tell you, Jamal, just in the year 2021 alone, we've witnessed the highest rate of home demolitions of any period since 1967. We've seen the fastest rate of settlement growth since since the normalization agreements were signed. So far from being a way of stopping Israel, they've actually given Israel the greatest gift. Israel has always wanted to be an occupier, to be an oppressor, and to be recognized as having legitimacy. And that's what they did. So they've given Israel exactly what it wants. It hasn't had to stop any home demolitions. It hasn't had to stop any um, land confiscation. It hasn't had to stop any settlement activity. And instead, it's been rewarded. I mean, we talk about timings. Uh, it's crazy. I can think of many other things, including also the recent uh, report by the rapporteur at the United Nations. And before that, of course, we talked about Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. So all these things, I feel like in, on on one hand, Israel is has its back to the wall because now more and more within the international community, within the human rights organizations are saying, you are an apartheid state, yet these guys decide to meet. I mean, it's it's kind of insane in a way. Correct. That's the whole point of, of why, um, why people are so upset with all of this, is that the, we've put forward a platform of, of BDS, of boycott divestment sanctions, and rather than them abiding by it, They've gone de- deliberately against it, just as we're getting to the point where the rest of the world is now seeing, you know, Sahanon, they've, they've just finally woken up and realized that, that we're living under a system of apartheid. We now see that these governments are openly um, going against that and, and not only um, forming, signing pacts with Israel, but going a step further. You know, Jamal, there isn't a day that goes by where I don't receive some sort of email um, from the Israeli government talking about a new agreement that's been signed with the UAE, whether it's another arms deal, whether it's the opening of universities or you know like exchange programs, or whether it's a free trade agreement. Every single day, it gets rubbed in our faces. Just the other day, uh, the Moroccan government started a new ad campaign that with signs all throughout the country that says. Um, Shalom Morocco, hello Morocco, and then at the bottom it says "Welcome home." At the bottom of the of, of these signs, you know, so this is the this has been something that we have been. It, they haven't done this in, in quietly. They've done it very much in our faces to show to the world that they're going to continue to defy what Palestinians say and do whatever it is that they want. The Palestinian Authority criticized the the summit, but they avoided condemning the Arab participants while uh, warning them that Israel was using the meeting to avoid dealing with the Palestinian issue. How weak of a response was this? It's weak, but I, you know, I'm not a fan of the Palestinian Authority, but I understand why it was done. Um, And I'll explain why. 
it's a very weak response and they definitely could have come out much stronger as we've seen, for example, some of the MKs came out much stronger and, and criticized it very openly and criticized the leaders very openly. The reason that the PA, the Palestinian Authority, uh, comes out with these meek statements is they're afraid of a repeat of, of Kuwait 1991. They were afraid that if they were to come out and openly criticize the leaders of these governments, and these are not de- democracies, Jamal. You and I know that, that if anybody's going to pay the price, it'll be Palestinians who are living in these countries. And so the fear is that if they come out very harshly against the, the regimes themselves, that, um, that there will be uh, repercussions to the Palestinians who are living there. So they sit quietly on the sidelines, uh, really. I mean, that's what I'm, I'm Effectively, seeing. Yes, yes, yes. They sit on the sidelines and, and, uh, and they continue to ask for money. You know, that one of the things that has been the most tragic of the Palestinian Authority is that the Israelis have turned us effectively into, they've turned the Palestinian Authority and us as people, as people who are just traveling around requesting donor money uh, from the Europeans and from the Arab states. And as we all know, that money doesn't come without conditions. There's always conditions that are that's placed on this money. Is there an impact or role uh, about um, that, for example, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine and resulting U.S.-Russian ten- tensions have had any effect on on the summit? No, no, not at all. I think if anything, uh, Bennett is trying to show that he is somehow a world leader and he's been pushing forward and saying that he's willing to host a summit uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And it's very laughable given that um, that on the one hand, he's trying to look like a leader on the world stage with 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 uh, with Zelensky and with Putin and and of course with these Arab states, but then of course ignoring the issue that that they have caused and created and continue to cause and create, which is the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Well, talking, uh, we started with uh, the show talking about optics, but also the optics about uh, what's happening in the Ukraine, uh, which is uh, very tragic, but uh, also it uh, awakened many. Uh, at least Palestinians, I don't know if many Western reporters, to see the difference about their reporting about what's going on in Palestine. I mean, uh, all the sympathy and, and towards Ukraine and, and, and uh, you know, showing images of the death and destructions, things that they have ignored to show in Gaza and report on in Gaza. How does this make you feel? Angry. Um, you know, Jamal, I've been I've been watching the the news and seeing the way, for example, that CNN has been reporting on Ukraine and everything from lionizing and glorifying um, people who have who are fighting to bringing sympathetic stories of of couples who are uh, trying to defend their homes to then bringing sympathetic stories about the about families who've who've lost their children. Um, and, and of course, giving zero attention to, to Russia, except to, to, uh, to declare that they're the, the aggressor. And I think back to the years of reporting that CNN has done on Palestine, where just the simple context, trying to get the context in of occupation was something that was impossible. Um, people who were resisting military occupation were never lionized. People who, who were trying to defend their homes were never glorified. People who lost their children were demonized and told that we kill our own children um, and facing this barrage of anti-Palestinian racism. 
Israel was always given a pass, unlike Russia. And, uh, and it shows me that people do have the ability to provide context. They do have the ability to provide um you know, knowledge about, about what's going on, about being sympathetic, about taking a side. And what it shows me very clearly is that in the case of many of these Western journalists, they've, they've taken a side and their side has been, has been Israel and, and only Israel. Do you think, do you think it's only like the pressure that they face from, for example, APAC and the Israel lobby, uh, or is it as, as we've seen on TV, the, it's it's about brown and black people versus blonde and blue eyes, uh, and that's why the coverage has been uh, very favorable towards Ukrainians. I think it's been a mix. I think it's been a mix. I think one is um, Russia has never been uh, viewed as a, a sympathetic nation in the United States, even in this heyday. It was still somewhat um, demonized. I think also the 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 fact that it's Ukrainians and not Palestinians is is something else. I think the fact that it's it's such short term rather than long term dealing with this uh, over the course of more than seven decades has made it much more easier for and made it easier for people to absorb it. And I think that the lobbies have played a role as well as their own internal racism. There's a lot of anti-Palestinian racism that, that permeates in, uh, in the United States and uh, it's been allowed to fester um, for, for m- several decades. How do uh, Israelis, because I, I know you, you <laughs> observe what's going on, how do they internalize, you know, demonstrating in different towns and center of Tel Aviv, you know, crying for Ukrainians when, when the misery and agony is just like a few kilometers away? It's, Israel, this has been, um, I, you know, it's, I, you've been getting, I've been getting whiplash watching what's going on. So there's one group that is um, very firmly on side of Ukraine, everything from you know, putting up signs and collecting donations to proclaiming that they are, they are Ukraine and that um, Palestinians are, are, are uh, Russia. Um, and we've seen this a lot. And then there's been another side, which has been the much more interesting side to watch, which is people who are sympathetic, but at the same time, still holding firm to this idea of a Jewish state. And so while, um, and, and so we've heard statements by the interior ministry, Ayala Chiket, who's come forward and said that they will allow Ukrainians, but she's also said they really only want Jewish Ukrainians to come in. And this is why we've seen them put into place measures to make sure that um, that th- those who are not Jewish are required to leave at the end of the war. So, you know, you get this, you get this on the one hand, trying to show sympathy and obtain sympathy. And then on the other hand, the true face of Israel comes out, the racist face of Israel comes out, um, in which they say that, that that you can really only stay if if you're Jewish. So it's been it's been quite interesting to watch. We've even seen uh, protests at the airport, protesting people who come in from Ukraine, um, some of the refugees who come in with signs by people signs held up by people saying we only want Jews to come into the country. Um, and of course, this is stuff that isn't being covered by by the news. 
Where do Palestinians uh, stand? I mean, I know many Palestinians who studied in Ukraine, they are married to Ukrainians, they've also studied in Russia and married to Russia. And so, uh, I mean, what position are, are they taking? And of course, uh, being sympathetic to see the, you know, what happens after a house or a building is being uh, bombed to, to smithereens. It's it's been it's been overwhelmingly you know understanding the humanitarian context that that uh, that Ukrainians are living under and what occupation means what war means what attacks mean so there's been definitely that side of of um, compassion and understanding on the other hand we've also seen that uh, the Palestinian Authority has said that they're not going to come out and make statements about it. And uh, and that's been interesting because they say, you know, on the one hand, you you want us you don't want us to be a state when when you don't want us to be a state. But then when it comes to something like this, you're expecting an international response as though we are a state. And and so they've taken the position of not taking a position. But for Palestinians here, mostly expressing sympathy, understanding what it's like to live under a bombing campaign, understanding what it's like to lose your home, understanding what it's like to educate your kids in fear and to have shortages. And, uh, and so a great deal of, uh, of sympathy. One of the things that, ha- that we've seen in the West Bank is that people who are fleeing um, haven't actually even been able to come to Palestine, particularly those who, for example, have been studying in Ukraine and don't necessarily have family in the West Bank, but don't necessarily have a West Bank ID card, that Israel hasn't been letting those individuals in either. Mm-hmm. So you can see that the ramifications are, are all around of, of what, what this has meant for people. Diana Budo, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. My pleasure. Thanks, Jamal. Thanks for having me again. That's the voice and the face of Diana Butu, human rights attorney, uh, from Palestine, talking about the Nekab summit, accord, clown show, whatever you want to call it, Jamal. But her analysis, as usual, uh, spot on. It doesn't seem like Diana is very optimistic <laughs> very much. What to be optimistic about? Uh, you know, Palestinians were invisible. So this is a, a summit to talk about the whole Middle East and peace in the Middle East, and, and it comes uh, as a, I don't know, continuation or a, or a sub-chapter of uh, the so-called Abraham Accords. Right. And, and then, of course, uh, Palestinians weren't invited, and the focus was not on Palestine, it was on Iran, as if Iran is the biggest threat in the Middle East. When you have a country, an apartheid state like Israel, that has been certified by every single uh, credible human rights organization that it is an apartheid state by the United Nations. Recently, they've issued a whole report. The rapporteur of the United Nations issued a whole uh, report. And, uh, of course, uh, out of all these places they picked to come to, those, um, you described them, clowns or whatever, the Arab uh, foreign ministers, they went to the Naqab, the Naqab Desert, or uh, known as also the Negev. Uh, this is the uh, venue or where Bedouins are ethnically cleansed on a daily basis. I mean, it makes That's headlines right. almost every other week with the Bedouin minority there 
who roamed the land and lived on the land for thousands of years, uh, Israel is stealing their land every day on a, an everyday basis. And by the way, which you don't hear about a lot, which uh, they summit uh, just happened on a kibbutz where a Ben-Gurion is buried. I mean, here is the mastermind of the ethnic of cleansing apartheid. Of, yeah. of, of the Palestinians. Uh, and they go there. It also starts on the eve of uh, land day. I mean, the optics and everything you can think about it, it's just like astounding. I mean, I just can't, well, I think I can't describe I, it to tell you the truth. Well, I would describe it as deeply provocative, Jamal. And the one thing you left out from two things you kind of, um, I know you didn't intentionally leave out, but the irony is not lost on any of us that uh, claiming that Iran is the biggest threat because of their nuclear weapons, uh, the apartheid state of Israel is has nuclear weapons, has over 200 warheads, is a nuclear power, never admits it, only kind of, you know, kind of discreetly or, in, uh, you know, very, very cautiously kind of gently uh, admits to it. But it's a, it's a, an apartheid state. That's a nuclear power. Okay, so, so, that's, so, so, so I'm just going to take you up on this, Jess, and, and say Israel brought two things to the Middle East, nuclear weapons and apartheid. Well, that's in addition to the ethnic cleansing that they that they brought at the same time. So the fact that these Arab house Arab leaders, these foreign ministers from Bahrain, Morocco and and Egypt and UAE decided to um, come and speak on behalf of Palestinians and come to this, you know, location symbolically where the the grotesque ethnic cleansing of Palestine began you know, 1948, even earlier, is is a disgrace in, in many ways. And yet, you know, screaming about Iran being this big threat right now, when in fact, uh, in, in many people's minds, the biggest threat to stability and peace in the, in the region is an apartheid state that is engaged in ethnic cleansing. And the one thing we should speak a little bit about, Jamal, because it has been making the headlines you correctly noted that uh, this occurred on the eve of land day and there was a lot of protests going on and there were upticks in you know attacks going on you know in 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 the occupied uh, palestinian areas you know there were you know my we we have always condemned um you know, attacks on civilians, Jamal, that is, that is something we have always condemned, you know, whomever, you know, is engaged in it. But at the same time, it seems like the Israelis are deliberately being provocative, and provoking, and not doing anything at the table to actually correct this apartheid wrong that they're engaging in. And of course, you know, the Hasbro machine is just out of control right now. Yeah, it's taking credit and, and going back to the Arab foreign uh, leaders uh, or foreign ministers, I should say, you know, imagine this just, I mean, they go to this summit, they don't invite Palestinians, they are isolated on some kibbutz in, in, in the Naqab uh, desert, they didn't have the decency 
to visit any Palestinians exactly. or talk to Palestinians who exactly. have been suffering on a daily basis. They didn't have the decency, for example, to speak to the Bedouins, to meet with the Bedouins. What's this noise is all about? You know, you're saying that Israel is confiscating your land, blah, 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 that we keep hearing in the news. They didn't even, they didn't even bother to look them in the eye and say, we are meeting with Israelis, we are meeting with your oppressors, we are meeting with those people. Is there any truth in that? And this is, I'm not talking about them now traveling to Jerusalem and going to uh, Sheikh Jarrah or Silwan, you know, or, or even, God forbid, making the, the, the trip to Gaza, which by the way, Gaza is not far from the Naqab. But anyway, they didn't even bother sitting with with the with the Bedouins, and these are Israeli citizens since 1948. And right. and you know they have been in the news. They just buried buried their heads in the sand, and that's that's kind of pretty much going to be the title of probably the show is Arab foreign leaders bury their heads in the sand of the Naqab or something like this. I, I I think that's a very kind description of what they're burying in the sand. But uh, yeah, I mean burying burying their heads in the sand, but the the depth of the disrespect, you know, to go to the Nakab and listen, all of those so-called Arab foreign ministers didn't have the courage or the dignity or the respect to go to Jerusalem, maybe go to the Haram Sharif, maybe go to Al-Aqsa and, you know, do something. Well, I, I just will interrupt about the Haram Sharif because, you know, the shoes will be flying at their heads, <laughs> and and we know that this happened. So, so I w- I would say with this, yeah, they probably did a strategic maneuver not to do that, but at least to sit and meet and ask questions and right. probe. They didn't do that, but I can tell you, and I assure you, uh, as a Jerusalemites, on behalf of all of the Jerusalemites, they are not welcome at Al Haram Sharif. And had they've gone there, like on a Friday during Friday pray- prayers. There'll be like a whole riot. Not riot only. They'll be they'll be pelted with, with shoes. shoes. Yeah. I mean they will they will not have been welcome. So so I can tell you that. That's that's something I'm very sure of. Well, Jamal, this is uh segues to our next uh segment actually, because you have the uh, being in complete denial on the part of these foreign ministers who happened to go to occupied Palestine to meet. You have the absence of any Arab leadership kind of condemning the apartheid uh, practices that the whole world is condemning the Israeli apartheid state. Now you have the United Nations Human Rights Commission kind of having the HRC 49, which is a resolution that was ad- voted on and adopted and, and basically calling out the human rights violations that are occurring in occupied Palestine right now. So it seems like, Jamal, what we're seeing is this increase in international uh, kind of acknowledgement of the apartheid practices and the human rights violations that are going on uh, in Palestine right now, and a complete avoidance of it by, uh, you know, leaders, in the Arab world, in the United States, and beyond. But the United Nations is taking, obviously, a keen interest in this. Well, I mean, I would say also that visit also represented, and this is what uh, Diana Bhutto and I talked about, it also presented a whitewashing of Israeli apartheid. I mean, this is when Israel had has its back against the wall. 
it has been labeled by the uh, every single credible human rights organization as an apartheid state. You have the rapporteur for the United Nations issuing a statement saying Israel is an apartheid state. You have now this uh, HRC 49 resolution at the Human Rights Council, which discusses basically Israeli settlements in the on occupied Palestinian territories, including, by the way, East Jerusalem, and including the occupied uh, Syrian Golan Heights, which, uh, right. if you remember, Donald Trump uh, gave the blessing to Israel to do so. And uh, oh, and 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 now you have those four Arab foreign ministers going there, pretending like nothing had hap- has happened, and they want to talk about like everything. Basically, they want, like we said, they want to hold hands and sing kumbaya, and that's what they were doing when you have everything going around them. Well, the reason the reason I call them uh, a clown car is. Because obviously they were told by the United States and by the Israeli leadership to show up. They didn't have a choice. I mean, Egypt, we know, receives... You always have, you always have a choice, but anyway. Well, yeah, but when, when, when you're that beholden to your, you, you know, to your um, money uh, from another country and security ar- arrangements, you know... They don't have the dignity or the respect to say no. So they were told by the United States and the apartheid leaders to show up, and they showed up. And if you look at the cast of characters that showed up, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, you know, problematic group. You know, when you think about Bahrain, you think about UAE, you think about Egypt, for example. Well, but talk about that. Just they're the bastion for human rights and democracy. <laughs> Yeah, well, if 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 you happen to be part of the ruling uh, elite, maybe, but the amount of human rights violations that are occurring in those countries is is you know rivals that of the apartheid state of uh, of Israel. So, you know, with all that said and done, it was uh, you know that's why I appreciated the interview that you did with uh, Diana because it puts an exclamation point on the. Um, not just the hypocrisy, but the amount of denial that the Arab leadership continues to live in right now. And, you know, it's not as if things are getting any better, you know, in terms of uh, what's happening globally right now. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But this HRC, uh, the adoption of the HRC resolution is kind of a big deal, Jamal. It's kind of... It's like an added... I mean, you have to... That's why you have to be totally blind now (laughs) not to realize that Israel is an apartheid state and it violates Palestinian human rights uh, on a daily basis. Which, by the way, talking about it, it was adopted uh, and and by a recorded vote of 38 to 3, and this is important, we should talk about that, to three with seven ab- abstentions, and this is uh, was adopted on April first, which is the fifty eighth meeting of the UN Rights uh, uh, UN Human Rights Council. So, let's talk about who said the naysayers. Of yes. course, the United States. Of course. Then, Malawi. <laughs> like okay, that they, they get to say something about. And Brazil, and we know the human rights record of of well, the Bolsonaro. In, yeah, it's in, Bolsonaro. In Brazil. So those right. are, you know, I mean, you know, it passed. It passed very handily, I would say, which is thirty-eight votes. But yet, the United States is still in denial. And I don't know what Malau's game in the. Uh, well, I know a little bit about that. They have they have a security agreement with the uh, Mossad. 
Okay. So, yeah, so I think that's part of their security and, and agreement. It, and we know about Brazil. I mean, the uh, Brazil. Well, Bolsonaro. Yeah, yeah he, Bolsonaro. He, he but but Jamal, Bolsonaro. Human Bolsonaro rights rallies. record in South America, right? And, right. <laughs> but you, you and I have talked about this. At Bolsonaro rallies, when he's rallying, you see the Brazilian flag and the Israeli flag right next to each other. So, then, then the lineup of the cowards. I mean, those are the naysayers. <laughs> I, to me, like, uh, to, to abstain is to be a coward really it like is a coward. You're trying sitting on the fence the uk which created if we go to the history of the whole nakba you go back to the uk they right. sat on the fence and they um, basically are neutral ukraine ukraine which you see on a daily basis cries and outcries saying that they're that Russians are 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 massacring them and violating the but we human know why. rights and whatever we know why they sat on the fence we know why they sat on the fence well, because i mean because don't, don't, their... don't ask the world to help you and condemn russia if you're going if if you know if you have known for decades palestinians have been abused well that's because zelensky's has his special relationship with uh, naftali bennett and the uh the the russian oligarch the israeli uh russian oligarchs all of which who are kind of flocking to the apartheid state for safety and so he so this is part of zelensky's ploy not to irritate the apartheid state even though his country is being pummeled by the russians then you have india well that that i understand why india is cowardly and that I, wouldn't that, surprise you actually what i'm thinking india would have voted would have been part of the naysayers but the reason they didn't do that is because there are a lot of indians living and working in the middle east that's right so like that it. doesn't i mean yeah I, i you're right i probably would have expected uh, india to vote directly against it so i guess it's be, being a coward is a win i guess well them. you know with modi and 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 the uh, islamophobia that that's is right. in india and the that's co- right. cooperation and collaboration with the with the apartheid regime i expected india to be one of the naysayer then you have nepal uh, i don't know why uh, i have no idea uh, the marshall islands i know we know why i mean they always do it yeah they always do it uh Cameroon and Honduras Well I that's a that's a good one that's a good call I'm really surprised about Honduras I I know that they also have a security cooperation with the Mossad I know that but Cameroon I'm a little surprised I don't know much about that relationship between the apartheid state and uh and Cameroon maybe I don't know. Do you do you know anything about that? No, no, I didn't have time to. But I know, like you're absolutely right. I mean, Israel uh, ships a lot of weapons to African countries and to also now South America, Latin America. They, they do. receive they receive weapons. They receive training by the Mossad. So I'm sure it has something connected to this. Yeah, and, that, and, and the Mossad some, does. And, and some of those also African countries receive uh, financial aid from Israel. Right. And so it could have been, you know, whatever pressure that they might have feel. But let let's be real, Jamal. None of those countries are considered, you know, uh great countries with human rights, uh great human rights records. None of those countries, either the naysayers or the fence sitters, these are not countries to really celebrate in any way, shape, or form. So um 
Nevertheless, here is the record for Israel just within the past, I would say, two years, Jess. Yeah. Starting with the Israeli Human Rights Organization, Betzalem, and then and then going to another Israeli Human Rights Organization, Yeshdin. Both say Israel practices apartheid. Then you have Human Rights Watch. Israel practices apartheid. Then you have Amnesty International issues a, a, a huge report detailing every aspect, not only since 1967, but they're going all the way back to, to 1948. 1948. Exactly. Israel is an apartheid state. Then you have a summary that is presented by the United Nations Rapporteur, and she come under all kinds of attack. Israel also practices apartheid and violates Palestinian human rights. And then you have HRC 49, which doesn't talk about apartheid, but it talks about human rights violations. Human rights and, violations. Right. and then, I don't know. And then, Seems is, like and then you, have, you have countries like the United States with, and, and senators and congressmen and so forth who will say Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Well, I think it's a bad couple of years for the apartheid regime, Jamal, but I, I, I want to kind of use what you just said as another segue to our next discussion, too, because, you know, at the same time, you have Joe Biden, the president of the United States, who's calling for the ICC to 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 investigate Russian, hum, uh, Russian uh, you know, uh, crimes against humanity for what they're doing in Ukraine. But isn't it ironic? There are the seven countries who never signed on to the ICC Rome Statute. Let's talk about who those countries are. Well, at least two of the countries, Jamal. Two of the countries are the United States is not a signatory to the ICC Rome Statute. Neither is the apartheid state. So here you have the irony, right? Here, here you have all these. I mean, I can't, I can't listen to you with a, you know, without smiling about it. Really, just I mean, it's it's beyond ridiculous. And then so we'll is, call it. We'll, we'll say that Putin has committed these uh, war crimes. But what I and I and I know you probably share this experience with me, Jamal. When I see those pictures from Ukraine and I see Bucha, I think about Sabra and Shatila. I think about. Um, Gaza. I think about and I think about Gaza because I've seen those same images, many of them live myself uh, when when I've been there and you've been there, you know the same kind of atrocities. And yet, you know, at least the but you know the the Israelis are being brought to the ICC at least. Well, but I just also, think it's also he he not only this but he also uh, named Putin and this is what uh, President Biden said on Monday as he condemned the slaughter of civilians in Butcha, uh, Ukraine, amid the withdrawal of uh, Russian forces from the region. And he put the blame squarely on on, on Putin, uh, Jess. And this is what he said. He said, you may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Uh, you know, that's on, uh, he told reporters in Washington, D.C. Um, and then, well, the truth of the matter you saw what happened in Bucha. This warrants him. He is a war criminal. So basically, he called another president a war criminal, which means when you talk about the ICC, it's even beyond that. It, he specifically names the head of the state. I mean, right. we know Israel 
involved in Palestinian massacres going way back under Ben-Gurion, like uh, Deir Yassin and other places, and never been brought up to the ICC or even mentioned, to uh, what happened in Gaza, what happened in Lebanon, Sabra, Sabra and Sh- uh, Shatila, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the irony by itself. Yeah, it's a it's a big irony, Jamal. Not not to mention what what happened in Syria, and we're back to this thing about the kind of racism and Islamophobia and the narratives around, you know. And I I'm, I'm I, it pains me to ev- even say this: okay massacres and not okay massacres. You know, massacres that rise to the occasion of being, you know, called war crimes and being brought before the ICC and others if they happen to be Muslim or Arab or Palestinian or Syrian or African. Or from Central America, those massacres. Well, let's don't let's matter. talk about what's happening now. Yemen, Saudi exactly. Arabia, our favorite, uh, what is it? Uh, you know, country, medieval the, state, medieval state in the Middle <laughs> East. You know, uh, the United States turns a blind eye, uh, just the same way they did that with the Khashoggi, the assassination of Khashoggi, and you have Saudi Arabia on a daily basis bombing and and and, and killing children in in Yemen. Who's responsible? Well, I think, you know, that's exactly right, Jamal. I do think, by the way, and I I just have to add this little footnote, as long as we're talking about Biden's hypocrisy. Isn't it interesting when, you know, the United States needs oil? Where did Biden go to first? He went to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They gave him the cold shoulder because of what Biden had said about Khashoggi. And uh, I just think it's ironic that you have these you know, countries or these monarchies like UAE and Saudi Arabia, who thrive by the protection, you know, thrive in their human rights violations by the protection of the United States, when the United States needed a little help from them in terms of maybe having more oil produced during this time of the uh, war in Ukraine, both, both Saudi Arabia and UAE turned a cold shoulder. I even heard a rumor, and I don't know if this is true, maybe you do, that uh, the uh, crown prince didn't even return the call to the yes, president that, of the this, United States. It was reported as such, actually. So the president of the United States can call an ally and and not even have, you know, the, the crown prince return the call. I think, Jamal, that the, there's enough hypocrisy <laughs> and grotesque human rights violations going around uh what what is different though is that as we've been saying, if you happen to be blonde and blue eyed, then you those deaths count towards bringing it forth to the ICC. But if you happen to be from some of these other countries, if you're from Yemen, Syria, Palestine, Africa, Central and South America, and you get massacred, we you know the massacres that occur in Mexico, for example, are are just unimaginable, and yet that is not ever brought to the well the other level. question if you're a, if you're not a signatory to the ICC why even make that case well because he's going to have the UK uh do he's going to have the UK do the bidding for him because that's the ultimate hypocrisy that the apartheid state and the United States refuse to be signatories to the ICC because they're among the grossest violators and you know people get a lot of um Heat. If you're if you say that the United States has committed war crimes, you know you have Lindsey Graham and all these senators who get all 
bent out of shape when you say things like that. But if you don't so nothing, believe... No, nothing happened in, in Vietnam, nothing happened in Iraq. And nothing happened in Afghanistan, right? So if you believe... And nothing happened in, in, in the black sites uh, also with uh, the torture programs that went on, you know, after 9-11. So if you believe that the United States is such a great defender and doesn't commit war crimes, why won't it be a signatory to the ICC Rome statutes? Uh, no one has been able to answer that question yet. That's a question I would like to address to Antony Blinken. I would like to ask Antony Blinken directly, why won't the United States sign on to the Rome statutes of the ICC? Very What's good up? question. Very good question. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're asking it now. Yeah, well, we're 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 asking it now. We doubt that the State Department or the the president will ever deal with this. Yet at the same time, Jamal, the United States continues to miscalculate and misunderstand uh, Vladimir Putin. Last week on this show, people were talking not on this show, but last week the media brouhaha was: Oh, Putin and Zelensky are going to meet. Russia is pulling back. We're getting close to a peace deal. I know that I poo pooed it. You poo pooed it. Both of our analyses where you guys are completely um, misreading, you know, Vladimir Putin and tragically, Jamal, our predictions have proven to be true because if, if anybody thinks that Vladimir Putin is pulling back or is moving towards peace, they're really delusional. And, and the, the, uh, there is more to it now, you know, like... They they moved away from from saying that right. So that that was the message last week, and now this week, the media is saying, "Well, uh, uh, Russia is losing the war, and he's yeah, ret- right. he's retreating." And but Not during true. the retreat, he's committing all these massacres, and and I say this is terrible because you are giving people hope when you know. That he is uh, basically uh, regrouping, regrouping different areas to kind of give people hope to say that the, you know, I don't know they're doing with doing it for what for for sound bites and that the well, you know they're lionizing idea. the Ukrainians as yeah, fighters yeah. and so forth. Right. But while in fact you have millions of people now like made refugee, you have cities that were totally destroyed and 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 I don't know the number now we don't have a, a, a proper count to the to how many ukrainians have died uh, instead the media keeps saying well here is the number of tanks that were destroyed of course the ukrainians are are fighting and doing their best as but, they should but but don't fool yourselves and say that they are retreating or they're losing yeah and you know i think That's a really good point, Jamal, because part of the problem is that media misrepresentation or media complicity or the the technical term is the media media's confirmation bias or need to find a heroic story in the middle of all this devastation is in fact, and I think you're exactly right about this, causing more harm to for Ukraine and Ukrainians because you now have this was just reported in the last 24 hours some 30 to 40,000 Ukrainians returning to Ukraine because they have bought into this narrative of the heroic. And, and don't get me wrong, a lot of this is heroic in terms of what they've done around Kyiv. But let's be really clear about this, Jamal. The Ukra- Ukraine is still under attack. Russia is just regrouping. There is no peace deal. Putin is not giving up. Putin is going to continue his 
his you know attempt to absolutely destroy Ukraine and bring it under its pressure. You had both uh, you had the leader of Hungary, for example, Obron today, who announced himself as you know they had an election. He won. He's a Putin supporter. So this idea somehow that Ukraine is defending democracy and changing things and, you know, supporting and protecting Europe. We're back to the same thing, Jamal. The media have completely misrepresented, and I think in a dangerous way, frankly, it's causing harm because the well, reality... For one, for one thing, they're, they're reporting one side. They're one-sided, you know, one-sided. Whether you support... You, you, the media, it's not up to you to wear the Ukrainian flag or any flag on your sleeve. You're supposed right. to report on the facts, the facts, and and they're not. They're using just they're using terrible things like you know, like you know. They're uh, what I'm saying. They're engaged in advocacy. This is what they're doing. They're, they're the, the U.S. media is engaged in advocacy, and that's not the place for it. And then also, in a way, you know, unless people have smartened up in, in, in Ukraine. They're giving people a lot of hope, just, just the, same, the same way that they gave, that the NATO and the United States gave false hope to Zelensky and then threw him under the bus. You know, I don't see anyone fighting on, on, on Ukraine's behalf. You know, it's a little, bit, a little bit too late to provide weapons and food and money once your country is like uh, devastated. Yeah. Yeah, Jamal, I think that's exactly right. I mean, one aspect of the devastation, obviously, is what the the horrific things that the Russian military is doing. But we know war is horrific. Let's not make any any bones well, about it. Well, we've seen the evidence, uh, the Russians. I mean, you see, you have to be a student of history to know what the Russians uh, had done in Afghanistan and, and Chechnya. What they, and Chechnya. You know, uh, to, to learn thing. that, you know, I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're the not there thing. on a, I'm not going to buy into Ukraine's kind of going, you know, we're just going to secure a Russian interest and, and, and preserve the country and da, da, da. You know, they are invaders, just yeah. like any country that invades any country. It that's exactly death and destruction. That's exactly right. And, and I have to just say one more thing about the media, Jamal, which is very upsetting to me. Is the way that they're um, the the way that they interview Ukrainians who are suffering on TV and kind of using that? I think for propaganda's sake or for whatever kind of idea that they have is really difficult for me to watch. Having myself worked in those areas and interviewed and been with people who have suffered similar losses, who have been through deaths of family members, to do those kinds of interviews so that people re-experience all that pain, all that trauma, and then they just leave them, Jamal. And right. the peop people are left with all that suffering after uh, a reporter gets their little juicy soundbite of somebody crying, and they're left to suffer on their own. And I think the biggest culprit, uh, frankly, is the U.S. media, whether it be CNN or all the major networks. It's really painful to see how they're doing this with uh, all of the people of Ukraine that are well, suffering. I'm sure we're going to be talking about this again next week. In a, sadly, we're going to be sadly. discussing this topic again next week. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com to download the latest show. And we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.